Hello, and welcome to the Bull Street Podcast. I'm Tim Kurtz. This podcast was designed to equip you to know Christ and tell of His amazing grace between Sundays. For more information about our church, please visit bullstreet.org. Well, I am joined this week by my good friend, Pastor Andrew Lucius. Hello, Tim. Andrew, thank you for joining, taking the time. We are in this series right now of looking at why we can have confidence that the Bible is what we believe it is, that it's the Word of God um, that has come to us through the means of human authors, but yeah, why we can trust it, why we can take what it says to the bank. And this morning, we are talking about transmission. So last week we talked about translation, how we know that what we have in our English translations is what the original texts say, at least the copies of the original text that we have. Today we're going to dive a little deeper and say, well, wait a second, these copies, the skeptic might say, these copies are not the originals, right? We just have copies of copies, sometimes copies of copies of copies of copies. Andrew, how can we be confident that what we have didn't get lost in this big game of telephone if things are just getting copied and copied over again? Yeah. I mean, this is a good question. It's an important question. Uh, It's a question we need to have answers for, and there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Let me begin by just saying, I think it's really important that we don't have the original manuscripts. So to kind of blow the skeptic's uh, foundation for his logic out of the water for a second, if we were to have original documentation of the Bible, um, inevitably that those fragments, those artifacts, that documentation would be elevated to a level that is almost uh, literally at a holy level, Hmm. right? And we call the Bible the Holy Bible, and certainly we believe that. As evangelical Christians, you know, we stand on the reality that we believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and that's why we're having these conversations. But but if we were to actually have original manuscripts, uh, it wouldn't just be the Holy Bible in the sense that this is the the words of God. It would actually be something that we would be tempted to see as literally holy. Yeah. And you think about, you know, you go to Washington, D.C., and you go into these archives, and you see the Constitution of the United States, and you think about, like, how that that document is protected. Yeah. And how many people are coming to see that document. That document's only 250 years old, and yet... (laughs) It's, it's treated with such care, such reverence. Yeah. And so you think about like, if we were to have original manuscripts, this would not be a good thing for the church. Mm. And so I think we need to first say, it is a good thing that God in his providence has limited us from having those manuscripts. Um, so I think I want to start there and say, uh, the question that's being raised here is not a scary one. In fact, it's it's a, one that we should uh, take a lot of hope in and a lot of joy in, the fact that we don't have the original manuscripts. Now, of course, you know, people, as you've mentioned, the skeptics will say, you know, well, then what do we have? Isn't this copies of copies of copies of copies? And there's many ways that we can address that. I think one of the things that we have to say about that at the very beginning, and then maybe I'll just kind of let you direct where we go next from here as we address this question, but is is that that's not actually accurate. Mm. Um, when we think of 
what the Bible is, and it's this copy of copy of copy of copies, and it's gone through different translations and different languages and all of those things. You know, really what we're looking at is uh, copies of documents that were produced as early as the first century. Hmm. Um, and so it's not that we stand now at this point in redemptive history and receive 2,000 plus years of transmissions, mm -hmm. but that we look back to copies of the originals nearly 2,000 years ago and derive from them our own English translations. I know you all talked about translations last week, but uh, and that's another conversation. But when we talk about copies of copies of copies, really, I think that's kind of a straw man argument. Uh, it's not really what's happening. That's helpful. I like where you started us. I had never even thought about that. If we had the actual originals, the problems that that could uh, pose. And it it's helpful, I think, to recognize that the physical text is not what matters. It's the word right. that is spoken. We can we can hold our physical Bibles as precious as they are to us, you know, and I think of like Bibles given to us by family members and stuff. Obviously it's a it's a treasure as far as an earthly possession. But we can relax if, you know, if a Bible gets lost or, or destroyed in some way. That's because right. it's not the the pages themselves, but it's what they say. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I think maybe one other thing to add in this conversation is New Testament scholars, especially those that have really majored on gospel studies, have dealt with these kind of issues at a different level when they think about the words of Jesus, hmm. you know, in the gospels. Are these his words, like specific literal words? Yeah. Or is this the voice of Jesus? Hmm. And I think that's a helpful distinction. Is it the verba, the actual verbiage that he's using, or is it the vox? Is it his voice? that's being transmitted through the gospel writer. And I think this is a similar principle that we're, we're thinking about now with translation and transmission now you know, through the ages. Yeah. You mentioned the date of the manuscripts is important to differentiate between, you know, what do we mean by copies of copies? And you're right. We have pieces of the text from very close to the time that Jesus lived. Right. It's not just that we have only copies that were made a hundred years ago, and those were made off of copies that were made a hundred years prior and a hundred right. years prior. Um, but we are copying off of some very, very early dated copies. We have a nearly complete copy of John's gospel um, dated to around the year 200. I'm going to read from a book uh, by Michael Kruger called Surviving Religion 101, where he's addressing kind of some of these questions a skeptic might have. Um, and he says, when we look at classical documents from the same time as our New Testament, a large gap of time between their initial publication and our earliest copy is not unusual. Consider Tacitus's Annals. Tacitus wrote that work around AD 100, and our earliest copy that we have is from the 9th century. Such a large gap is fairly common, but the New Testament is, is an exception to that general pattern. Although the vast majority of New Testament manuscripts are dated to the Middle Ages, we have numerous manuscripts that go back as early as the 2nd and 3rd century after Christ. Indeed, some scholars have argued that in the 2nd century alone, we may have as many as a dozen manuscripts covering over 40% of the verses in the New Testament. On top of this, we have a nearly complete copy of John's Gospel dated around the year 200. So date is something that obviously is very helpful in right. understanding how things were transmitted. Uh, I think this touches on something else, though, and that's the sheer quantity of yeah. copies that we have. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, I mean, I, there isn't a, maybe a whole lot to say there other than, yes, that's true. I mean, the amount of resources and manuscripts that we're looking to now for our 
Bible translations is um, numerically uh, much greater than any other book, you know, dating back to, you know, early first century or even, you know, before the time of Christ. You think of the Odyssey is, is maybe the best example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a lot of other books that we don't maybe treat as critically as the Bible, manuscripts from Socrates or mm-hmm. some of the Stoics, manuscripts from, you know, early first and second century that don't receive the same kinds of criticism, I think, that the Bible does. Now, the Bible claims to be something that those other books don't. <laughs> sure. You know, so that's probably uh, a good thing that, uh, you know, there there's that textual criticism that's coming in to really test the Bible and to say, is this really, you know, the words of God from God? Can we trust it? And I think, again, you know, the Christian doesn't need to be scared of these questions. Mm-hmm. The Bible has enough veracity and enough stability to stand on its own. Um, we don't have to feel the pressure to defend it. Mm. And I think if we can, if we believe that, it frees us to look at it more honestly. Yeah. Um, and I think on the other side of that too, we see, oh yes, the Bible can stand on its own. And what the skeptics may look to to say this should cause you to doubt your faith actually does the very opposite of that. Yeah. You know, when we actually do see the Bible standing on its own two legs, it does not need Andrew Lucius mm. or anyone else to defend it. It defends itself. Yeah, that's really good. Another example that uh, I don't remember where I heard this, uh, but along those same lines is we don't have any original copies of Shakespeare's plays. Right. But we don't think anything twice about that there was a real Shakespeare and he really wrote plays. That's right. Um, but and, and that list you know, continues on, right? right. Like C.S. Lewis, yeah. we don't have original manuscripts of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. Tolkien, we don't have original manuscripts of much of what he wrote. I didn't know those examples. Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> like, uh, and you even think about like the, um, the development of those things, yeah. right? It's likely, even if we had a full manuscript of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, well, that was that the original manuscript? <laughs> yeah, you know. So there's all kinds of questions that that come into play there. And you know, again, the Bible is claiming to be something that these other books aren't. Right. But I think if we're going to come at it from a biblical, uh, from a textual criticism perspective, we should be willing to treat the Bible fairly. Mm. And I think that's where I would push back on the critic to say there are arguments being made, straw men being thrown up that really aren't in line with textual criticism right. as we look to other literary works. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Um, something else thinking of just the vast number of manuscripts. I mean, we have, I think over 5,000 at least pieces of epistles or yeah, obviously not the originals, but, uh, I don't know what the word is. Artifacts, articles, pieces. Yeah. I don't know. Artifacts. Um, Um, something that naturally comes up when you have such a huge quantity is there's going to be more opportunities for discrepancies. I think that's something that from a skeptic perspective can become a straw man of like, well, look how many differences there are Mm -hmm. when yes, there's so many differences because you're dealing with hundreds of percent more copies than compared to like, yeah, our, our two copies of Homer or whatever it is. Um, There's not going to be that many discrepancies between a few copies of something. Right. But when we have thousands of copies, there might be little discrepancies. I think it's important to note that those discrepancies by and large are never dealing with doctrinal things. They're all saying that Jesus was God. He was the Christ. He died. He rose again. Like those things are the same in every book. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do want to ask about, for instance, say I'm reading along in my Bible in Mark 
or John. Um, those are the two kind of the biggest famous sections yeah. where, you know, the end of Mark, it's the end of Mark. It's the ending. Yeah. You've got a big section that in my Bible, it says yeah. some manuscripts don't have these last few verses. It doesn't end this way. Right. What do I, what do I do with that? Should I not look at that section as, as much of the Bible as the rest of the Bible? What, yeah. what do we do with that? Well, I think I would start with the question of what is the Bible? Because that helps us frame what we're reading, right? Just mm -hmm. as we would any other book. What kind of book do we have in our hands? Um, the Bible is not a book of songs. It's not a book of history. It's not a book of, of uh, instruction. It contains all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that any one of those things would fully synthesize what the Bible is. And so I would reduce it down to this, really, the Bible is a book for people to understand what's gone wrong between them and God and how to be back in a right relationship with Him. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately the purpose of the Bible. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, people will mention, um, you know, discrepancies or differences between manuscripts and even citing numbers, but I always want to say, okay, well, what are those? Mm -hmm. What are you seeing? Because yeah, you're right. You know, if we see something that you know maybe a discrepancy between two texts related to the addition of something, mm -hmm. um, as long as that doesn't undermine the main purpose of the genre of the Bible, then I think we're still on safe ground. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we do see. In fact, that none of those variants, none of those textual variants, have any kind of sway or temptation away from the main purpose of the Bible. Uh, and many of them, most of them, in fact, I would say are so minuscule, mm -hmm. um, they either are easily explained or so insignificant, they really don't change the way that we read the Bible. And I think we also need to say here, the original manuscripts, which we don't have, mm -hmm. were written by men. And those uh, men, and then those that have copied those, make errors as they write. Mm -hmm. And so when we say that the Bible is inerrant, what we don't mean is that the copies have been perfectly notated and trans, uh, uh, transmission throughout the centuries. What we mean is that it's without error related to its message. Mm. Um, and so that, that's a lot of maybe background, but I think when we, th when we come to texts like Mark and uh, John as well, let's think about Mark first. Uh, yeah, an interesting text here at the end of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. One of the things that I think is fun to do is, you know, let's just imagine for a second that this isn't a part of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Have you ever finished reading the Gospel of Mark and just not read this section? <laughs> we'll do a little exercise together okay. today. Okay. All right. So imagine that Mark ends with verse 8. And I'll just maybe read. So this is the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. So she's coming to the tomb in verse five. It says, and entering the tomb, uh, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he laid, but go tell his disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Mm. And that's where it ends. Yeah. 
Well, you can maybe understand why yeah. some additions would have been added to that. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I did do a little bit of research on this because I saw that you had wanted to talk about this. There's an article on the Gospel Coalition by Elijah Hickson. It's really good. He addresses this specific um, section of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I'll just kind of summarize some of his um, points here. He did you know, point out that two of the majority manuscripts don't include this text. He also pointed out, though, that it's been referenced by Irenaeus as early as 180 AD hmm. and is against heresies. And, it, and it's referenced in that text as scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think we can derive two things from that. One, it's probably not Mark's writing. Okay. I would say that that's probable. Um, however, uh, it is very early. Yeah. Early enough for a theologian in 180 AD to affirm it as scripture, yeah. which would have gone through you know different kinds of tests before he would have written something like that. Um, so I would say, I think that it's likely apostolic, mm-hmm. but unlikely from Mark. Hmm. And so then, you know, we have questions to ask, well, you know, then is it scripture? Yeah. Well, I think it still stands the test that is given to the Bible as a whole. You know, mm-hmm. if we believe that it's an apostolic writing, does it, uh, was it written by people that knew of and were first uh, person interactors with Jesus? I think, yes, that's that's most likely the case. Um, is it consistent with the rest of the Bible? Well, yes, absolutely it is. In fact, um, you know, you have almost a great commission here at the end of, of chapter 16. And so, you know, what do we do then? If we hold that position, if we say it's apostolic, but probably not from Mark, then what, what should we do with it? I think exactly what has been done with it. Mm. It should be notated in the Bible yeah. as it is. My mind says some of the earliest manuscripts, which we've already mentioned, do not include 16, 9 through 20. And that's all that they say. Uh, but by placing it in the Bible, those that have compiled the Bible, even as early as first and second century, are saying, we believe these are consistent and in line with biblical text. Mm. And so we believe this is the Bible, though it may not be written by Mark. Yeah. I think that's how I would say it. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's some freedom here for us to admit, right? Yes, textual criticism leads us to believe this is not original to the gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. But, um, and this is another point that uh, Nixon makes, it's likely that uh, those that are uh, transcribing it or writing it, even in the apostolic era, saw a deficiency in Mark's writing to say, let's compare this with Matthew and Luke and John. Okay, he just ends, (laughs) like we don't see a resurrected Jesus. Mm. And of course, we know that's so important not yeah. just to know of his resurrection, but to actually see it. They were eyewitnesses of it. Yeah. And so likely because of that, they would have gone back in later yeah. and and put this uh, last section in to really close out the specific gospel. But yeah, honestly, you know, we don't know for certain what's going on here, but that's, I think, the most likely possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think with, with all of the things that we're talking about right now, you know, we don't come at the Bible as people that jettison our faith for a minute. Mm. You know, even as we read the text, we have a faith that God is 
speaking to us through it, that he's preserved its integrity, you know, throughout history, that uh, these are his words. And so, and we're believing many other difficult things, you know, so again, I think, (laughs) you know, to say, okay, I believe that this is not Mark's writing, but I believe this is apostolic writing. Yeah. I also believe that the son of God became man of a virgin, died to pay the penalty for my sins and then rose again. And now he's ascended. I mean, yeah, compared to the other things I'm believing, these are not very hard yeah. to say, oh yeah, that's just apostolic writing. I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. Uh, if anything, it really, yeah, it gives, us, it gives us an opportunity to be edified in different ways. I can read the end of Mark and one, praise God for the thousands of manuscripts that we have. I see that and I'm, I'm not, it doesn't hinder my faith, but it encourages my faith because I see there are so many testimonies to what happened in the first century in Israel that that I can believe what I believe with confidence. I can support what I believe in my heart with what I am thinking about in my head because I see so many copies of manuscripts. Yeah. Beyond that, I can then love the Lord my God with all my mind further by asking, well, what did Mark end that way for? Okay, maybe he was highlighting in a way that the other other gospel writers didn't highlight to the same extent, the the lack of faith on the part of Israel and the disciples. And he ends so abruptly to force me, the reader, to go, who do you think that Jesus is? Mm. Okay, maybe that was his point. And then praise the Lord for those other <laughs> apostles who said, but it didn't just end there. Let's make sure we have yeah. the resurrected Christ because that is so vital to complete the story. Right. It's just, it's, it's more opportunities for me to be edified by scripture and for me to glorify my God who is speaking to me through his word. Yeah, that's right. Well, you mentioned John as well. You know, that's the other big text. John seven. That's right. And it's really, really into chapter eight. You get one verse in seven and then eight through 11 or eight, 11. Um, And yeah, I think one of the things I found on that today that was really encouraging to me was a consensus of New Testament scholars of today that see that not as original to John. Mm. Yeah. And the reason that's encouraging to me is because it again affirms the idea that we don't have to defend the Bible. Yeah. Right. So you think of, you know, I've got some quotes from D.A. Carson, Bruce Metzger, Leon Morris, Andres Kostenberger. I mean, these are legit New Testament guys. Mm-hmm. And you would think if their interests are in preserving a document that not only is their livelihood built upon, yeah. but their very soul, yeah. uh, it would be easy for them to come at that and maybe either inauthentically um, admit something that they don't believe mm-hmm. or to advance something that's not true, but that's not what they do at all. I mean, here's Carson. He says, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. And modern English ver- versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to re- uh, relegate it to the footnotes. And that's in his commentary on the gospel of John. Hmm. You know, or Metzger says uh, in a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, the evidence for the non-Johannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress is overwhelming. You know, so there again, you've got New Testament guys that are saying, yeah, this probably isn't a part of John's original uh, manuscript. And yet, uh, that doesn't shake our faith that the Bible is still the Bible. Mm-hmm. 
And they'll go on to argue with John's text that uh, though they don't believe it's from John specifically, that it certainly was a story that happened, uh, recounted in other gospels, um, and consistent with those. It doesn't in any way present any facts or ideas or even infer, right, a character about Jesus or other disciples that's inaccurate with the rest of the Bible. You know, so there again, I think you just say, and this was much later, this text, Mm. which gives us another problem. I think this one's a harder one to deal with where we've got the passage from Mark coming up in 180 AD. This one, not until the fifth or sixth century do we see it popping up. So Mm. in John's gospel anyway. And so, yeah, this one's much harder to deal with. But, you know, again, I think there's confidence to say, regardless of why this is here or when it was added, uh, it doesn't contradict anything we believe uh, for whatever reason someone thought it would add to or advance the gospel of John. Um, And I think that's where we just have to trust the Lord again, just to say, uh, your ways are not my ways. And, uh, you know, thank you that this doesn't in any way change the message of the Bible, you know, getting back to that, what, what is the Bible? Yeah. It's meant to be a book that shows us how we fell from favor with God and how to get back there again. Yeah. And, and these textual variants really do nothing to compromise that. Yeah. And just remembering that, you know, they used the media that they had available to them. They didn't have cameras or computers to be able to document. They were writing things down by hand and they wrote accounts of this man's life um, as fully and as detailed as possible. And it just makes me think, you know, we see now in a mirror dimly, like I cannot wait to be face to face with my Lord to ask about all of the other things that I, one of my favorite verses is at the end of John where he says, there's so much more I have to say, yeah. but all the books in the world couldn't hold it. Like, that's right. I can't wait to learn the other stories that happened. It, it's it's yeah. so much more than just what happened on the pages, but we have what we need. That's a great point. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. There's so much more that happened yeah. that they couldn't tell us. They, and what we have to say to that is, uh, it's not needed yeah. for us to know. Yeah. I want to close with one more quote from uh, Michael Kruger. He's quoting Bart Ehrman, who's kind of a, a leading skeptic today. He says that Ehrman writes, if God really wanted people to have his actual words, surely he would have miraculously preserved those words just as he miraculously inspired them in the first place. In other words, if God really inspired the New Testament, there would be no scribal variations at all. The problem with this approach is that Ehrman is working with his own self-appointed definition of inspiration, which, which sets up an arbitrary standard that can never be met. Does inspiration really require that once the books of the Bible were written, God would miraculously guarantee that no one would ever write them down incorrectly? Are we to believe that inspiration demands that no adult, no child, no scribe, no scholar, not anyone, would ever write down a passage of scripture in which a word was left out for the entire course of human history? Or was God prohibited from giving revelation until Gutenberg and his printing press? Here's where we come to the nub of the matter. If God gave his word through normal historical channels, then we don't need to be surprised to find some textual variations. That's true of every document in history. And we don't need assurance about every last textual variant to be certain about the message of the New Testament. We are not forced to choose, as Ehrman suggests, between knowing everything and knowing nothing. God, through his providence and through normal historical channels, has sufficiently preserved his word so that the glorious good news of the gospel is fully intact. I think that also highlights the beauty of how God uses people to accomplish yeah. the mission, right? So yeah. whether it's evangelism or writing Holy Scripture, He uses flawed people mm. to 
do those things. And what a privilege that is. I mean, if that weren't the case, we would not be doing what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he would have someone else, you know, an angel or yeah. some kind of perfect being coming to pastor his people. Absolutely. But it's flawed hum- human beings. Mm. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for participating with me, flawed as you are, flawed as I am. Yeah. You're and welcome. Even recording this. My pleasure. And yeah, I hope it's I hope it's helpful. And I think uh, you know, even as we've talked about it, I'm reminded of uh, the great confidence we can have that God is mm. sovereign over even the transmission of his Bible. Mm. Amen. Mm.